Good morning. If you'd like to turn in your Bibles with me to Exodus chapter 34, verses 4 through 9. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshipped. Lord, he said, if I have found favor in your eyes, then let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin and take us as your inheritance. Exodus 34, verses 4 through 9. Good morning, everyone. Good to see you all. I'm happy to be here with you this morning. Um, Alicia and I got a chance about a couple of weeks ago to take a short vacation, and we really enjoyed having some time to relax, uh, get away, and, and meet new people. Uh, one of the things that usually happens when you meet somebody new is a, an introduction, right? You know, you know, they, they tell you a little bit about who they are, and then you get to share a little bit about who you are with them. How do you introduce yourself? You talk about your job, maybe your school, maybe where you live, what family you're from, or who you're married to. Maybe you talk about your kids. Maybe you talk about your faith. And introductions, I think, are, are kind of really interesting because it's a, it's a, it gives you a chance to tell people who you are, but, but it needs to be short. You know, you have like a few sentences to give somebody the gist of who you are. And so introductions, even though they're short, they're also quite powerful because you kind of really distill down the very essence of who you are into just a few short sentences. You know, the, the most powerful and important aspects of your life are what you, you tend to share. And so you're sharing the, ve- the very essence of who you are in short form. Uh, as you probably all know by now, this year we're focusing on a sermon series called What We Believe. We started out the year talking about what we believe about the Bible, and now in uh, February and March, we're going to be looking at what we believe about God. And in order to really talk about what we believe about God, we have to spend some time talking about His nature, you know, who He is. Who is God? I mean, that's a big question to try and answer, uh, but... Speaking of introductions, I thought maybe the best, or one of the better ways at least, of of trying to understand who God is, is to let him introduce himself to us. If an introduction is sort of the very essence of who someone is, then the way that God introduces himself will probably be worth paying attention to. Thankfully, the Bible records this amazing conversation between Moses and God in the book of Exodus. Um, and in this account, Moses is speaking to God and he says, teach me your ways so that I may know you. 
And then later on, God responds to Moses by giving him an introduction of sorts into who his nature is. And today I wanted to look into what God said and also how his nature affects our lives today. So before we get into what God said to Moses, let's look at the context a little bit. Uh, We're picking up the story here. Uh, after the Israelites have been set free from Egypt, you know, they're, they're in, they've went through the ten plagues. They went through the uh, parting of the Red Sea. They've been wandering around in the desert. And after a while, God calls Moses up on the mountain to give him the, the stone tablets and the laws that are written on them. And while Moses is up on the mountain, the rest of the people are down below. And, you know, they get impatient, apparently. They've been waiting too long, and something awful happens that's recorded in Exodus 32, verses 3 and 4. It says that all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron, and took what they and and he took what they had handed him and made it into an idol and cast it into the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. And they said, "These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt." I mean, this scene, it would, it would almost be funny if it weren't so sad, really. I mean, God just brought these people out of, out of Egypt, out of their slavery. He parted the Red Sea. He did all these other miracles. And then they turn around and create some ridiculous idol, pretending that this calf is the who brought them out of Egypt. I mean, can you imagine this? And as you can imagine, God is furious. He says to Moses in in chapter 33, 1 to 3, leave this place and go up to the land. I promised you on oath, I will send an angel before you, but I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. God says, you know, he, he promised them the promised land. You can go to the promised land. I'll send an angel with you, but I am not going. He's not going to go with them. And this is a bad news situation for the Israelites. But thankfully, this is where Moses steps in. He shines in this place. He, he says in Exodus 33, verse 12, You have been telling me, lead these people, but you've not told me whom you'll send with me. You said, I know you by name and you found favor with me. If you're pleased with me, teach me your ways so that I would know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this people, uh, this nation is your people. The Lord replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Moses, he doesn't want to go with this unknown angel. It's not good enough for him. He wants God to be with them. And thankfully, God changes his mind here in verse 14. He says that he will go. But even this is not good enough for Moses. And this morning, I really want to zero in on, on what happens next. Moses makes this request at the, at the beginning of verse four, uh, 13. He says, teach me your ways so that I may know you and continue to find favor with you. For Moses, it wasn't good enough just for God to be with him. He wanted to know God. He wanted to know who he was. And in a way, you could say Moses was asking God to introduce himself, to reveal his nature. And God seems to be pretty pleased with this request. He calls Moses back up on the mountain and he shares this incredible description of himself that has echoed ever since through the ages. It's what Bob read for us this morning. I just want to read verse 6 and 7 again. It says that he, God, passed in front of Moses uh, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate 
and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation. So I want to spend the bulk of our time today talking about what God said here. It's important because if we understand who God is, it affects so much of how we relate with him. And we will and so as we go through this, hopefully we'll we'll understand who God is, but also we can expose some of the common misconceptions I think that are out there about who God is. Hopefully we can clear those up and see him for how he explains himself here. Let's start where God starts. He, he calls himself compassionate and gracious in verse 6. Do you, do you believe this about God? I'm going to really challenge all of us to, today to think about these descriptions in a really personal way. It's pretty easy to understand uh, that the Bible says these things about God. You know, we read them and we sort of understand it as a, at a factual sort of level. But do you believe that God is compassionate and gracious towards you? Do you really believe that God cares about you? Because sometimes I don't think we connect these facts that we know about God and His nature with the day-to-day experiences of our life. You know, maybe deep down, if you're honest, you'd have to say that you believe that God cares about, you know, some people, but not really you. And if that's you, I hope today you'll open your mind to this possibility. You know, it's not that God is sort of compassionate or kind of gracious. These characteristics that he's describing are his identity. It's, it's who he is, right? His compassion and his grace are not limited to a certain group of people or, or they don't just exist sometimes when things are going good. His nature is who he is all the time, regardless of what's happening. I found a neat example a few chapters before what we're reading here in Exodus that stood out to me. It comes from one of the laws that God gave the Israelites. In Exodus 22, verse 26, it says, If you take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, return it by sunset. Because that cloak is the only covering your neighbor has. What else can they sleep in? When they cry out to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. I am compassionate, God says. He makes it clear that he knows what his people are going through. And he cares about it. (laughs) He cares about if people are being taken advantage of. He cares about when people are cold at night. Have you ever thought about, you know, if God cares when you're cold? I mean, he cares about even the small details of your life. He has compassion for you in that way. When things are going poorly, God knows because he is a compassionate and gracious God. So the next thing that God says about himself in his uh, introduction of sorts is that he is slow to anger. And I think this is one that we need to hear personally as well. Maybe some of us, and I can relate to this, uh, have accepted this sort of distortion of, of this part of God's nature in our minds. We've sort of ignored the slow to part, and we just focus on the anger part. I don't know if anyone can relate to that, but maybe maybe we see God as more of an enforcer type. Someone who's just waiting for us to step out of line so he can smite us. You know, this is a common misconception. 
We maybe see God like this picture here, an old man in the sky hurling lightning bolts at anyone who dares cross him. It's just not accurate, though. It's not how God describes himself in our passage. You know, yes, God does get angry when people turn against him, but his anger, it's not some juvenile temper tantrum. He gets angry because he wants what is best for you and me. That's his love. And when we turn against his ways, we're walking away from the good plan that he has for you and me. The good plan that he wants for our lives. But even when we do that, God's anger is tempered by his patience. He is slow to anger, the passage says, because he wants us to turn back to him. He doesn't want to strike us down. God makes this so clear about himself. And in Ezekiel 18.32, he says, I take no pleasure... No pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Sovereign Lord. Repent and live. And again in 2 Peter 3, 9, God says, or it says about God, The Lord is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. I hope you can see God for who He really is today. Instead of a distortion that we might have in our minds. He's not the one waiting for you to step out of line so he can just strike you down. He is the one who is right there with you in the mess of life, leading you in a better path. He wants you to repent. He wants you to succeed in the life that he has for you. To take his path. And like Wayne mentioned last week, he's willing to roll up his sleeve and get his hands dirty to help you. God is slow to anger. The next thing that God says about himself is that he is full of love and faithfulness. And I want to challenge us in the same way again. Do you really believe that this part of God's nature applies to you? I mean, do you really deep down in your heart of hearts believe that he loves you and that he will not give up on you? This is important. Think about it. Sometimes, if I'm honest, it doesn't always feel that way. And I'm guessing maybe it doesn't for all of us. I've learned that this usually happens to me when I'm relying too much on my own performance. You know, my own good behavior, my own ability to get things done. Because I'm relying more on myself than I am on God. The reality is that God loves you and me before any of that. While we were still sinners... He loved us so much that Jesus died for us. He didn't require us to be good enough before he would show his love. In fact, it's exactly because we're not good enough that he chose to show his love. His love is his nature. It's literally who he is. And now I want to be clear as well that God's love does not mean affirmation like it often does in our society today. Uh, God's God does certainly not, he certainly does not affirm or celebrate or accept sinful behavior. But he shows his love despite our sinful behavior so that he can lead us away from it. His desire is what is best for you and me. And his desire remains that regardless of our performance, regardless of the cost for him. He will keep loving us because he is faithful. He is not going to compromise on who he is, which means he will never give up on you. He will fight to the bitter end to make sure he can have you as one of his children, as far as it depends on him. 
Unfortunately, many people, and sadly, I think even a good number of Christians, struggle to accept God's love. They believe that He probably loves some other people, but just not them. Maybe you're one of those people. I know I've struggled with this idea in my life. There's no simple answer for why this problem exists, but maybe part of the reason is that somehow we've come to believe that God only cares about our performance. In God's eyes, we conclude we're only as worthy as our last good deed or maybe our last failure. In short, we believe that God will only love us if we're good enough. And we just can't seem to believe that we are. And that's really a sad place to be. And it's based, I think, largely on the lie that our standing before God is dependent on ourselves rather than on the nature of who He is and what Jesus has done for us. If you have ears to hear today, I want you to hear this. If you feel like God doesn't love you with respect, I want to, I want to tell you that you're wrong. He loves you, and I'm, He loves everyone, and I'm sorry, but you still fall into the category of everyone. Even if you've messed up big time, even if you don't understand some things about Him, even if you can't seem to keep your life on track, even if you doubt Him, even if you're angry with Him, even if you haven't lived up to what He has called you to be, I promise you, He has not given up on you. He does not give up. He is faithful. He still loves you and He is still working to draw you closer to Him. We need to believe these words of Scripture, not the lies of Satan. You know, the words of Scripture like what it says in Philippians 1.6. This applies to all Christians. It says, I am certain that God, who began the work within you, the good work within you, will continue His work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. If you've given your life to Christ, God has started this work in your heart and He is not going to stop. We have a choice to walk away from Him, but He will never walk away from us. He is loving. He is faithful. So God describes Himself next in the passage as forgiving. He's not a God who harbors bitterness. He doesn't want to hold a grudge. He wants to forgive and He does. The whole story of the Bible is the story about how God has gone to these incredible lengths to forgive the people who have sinned against Him. We know this, right? But, but many of us, I believe, still drag around our past sins like a ball and chain. We believe that God could forgive the sins of some other people, but somehow our sins are special and they're just not forgivable. Man, our enemy loves to sow seeds of doubt like that because... That doubt grinds our faith to a halt and and steals our joy. It stifles our service. If you're struggling with this, again, I, I hope that you'll see the best antidote to these lies is the truth of Scripture. Kind of like what it says in 1 Peter 2.24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Do you believe that? Or maybe like what it says in Hebrews 10:14, By one sacrifice, Jesus has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Do you believe that? 
These scriptures tell us the truth that through Jesus, our broken relationship has been healed. And if we remain in Christ, we have been made perfect in God's sight, not because we're sinless, but because Jesus has paid the penalty for our sin. There's nothing left to pay. This was God's plan all along because this is his nature. He is forgiving. And as long as Jesus continues to be our Lord and Savior, you are forgiven. It is finished. Not just for the Christian sitting next to you. Not just for your brother or sister who seems to have it all together. For you. For me. All of us. It's not that you deserved it. It's not that you earned it. It's that God is a forgiving God who wants to be in a relationship with you. It is who he is. It's his nature. The last thing in the passage that God points out about himself is his desire for justice. He will not leave the guilty unpunished. This quality of God is just as important as all the rest. And while the other qualities might seem a little more maybe warm and fuzzy, this uh, this discussion about his justice shows us that God has a backbone as well. We need to take all of these qualities together in order to really understand who God is. Although at first glance it might seem difficult to see how they fit all together. There's a story I'd like to just briefly touch on from the book of Numbers that really helped me to understand how all of these aspects of God fit together you might remember that time when Moses sent the 12 spies into Canaan's land to check things out. And he told them to go take the land. But when the spies come back, 10 of them stirred up a big controversy saying that they shouldn't go because they would lose the battle. The people there were just too strong. Numbers 14 says that all the, Israelite, all the Israelites lost their faith because of this controversy, and they started to figure out how they could go back to Egypt. Their lack of faith made God angry, and God was ready to send a plague to wipe out the whole nation. But just like with the golden calf incident, Moses again steps in to ask God to reconsider and look at the words he uses when he's talking to God. Now may the Lord's strength be displayed just as you have declared. The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love and forgiving, and forgiving sin and rebellion. Yet the Lord does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children for their sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. In accordance with your great love, forgive the sin of these people just as you have pardoned them from the time they left Egypt until now. Do these words sound familiar? You know, it's the same thing that God said to Moses about his nature. He echoes it back to him. He's asking God to consider who he is before he sends this plague to wipe out his nation. And the way God answers Moses after he says this in Numbers really shows us how all of this stuff, all of these parts of his nature fit together. Check out what he says in Numbers 14.20. The Lord replied, I have forgiven them. Nevertheless, as surely as I live, not one of those who disobeyed me and tested me will ever see the land that I promised on oath to their ancestors. So here it is. These different parts of God's nature coming together. He remains faithful. He forgives. He remains loyal. But there are still consequences for sin. 
He chose to punish the people who instigated this great sin on behalf of the whole nation. And this is a great example, I think, because it shows these different parts of God's nature coming together. He forgave the nation, but there were still consequences for their sin. And sometimes these consequences can even affect the next generation. And and this is how we should understand this part at the end here. It's not that God is going to punish an innocent child for something their, their mom or dad did. The language here means that when one person sins, it often has a ripple effect on the next generation. We don't need to look too far into our world to see how this is still taking place today through hatred and and racism and other sinful practices from one generation that are being passed down to the next. God allows this to happen so that people have a chance to witness the destruction of sin and be motivated to turn back to Him. So our God has given us a great description of who He is, and I just want to quickly close with three things that we can do to respond to it. As I was looking over our text, I found that Moses responded in three ways that were pretty amazing. And so I'd just like to point those out because I think we can do these same things too. The first one is from verse 8. Moses' first response was just simply to bow down and worship. And this is so simple, but yet it's so brilliant at the same time. As we've been talking through these different qualities today, I hope that something has really stood out and made an impact on you. Pretty soon we're going to be singing a song and maybe you can just be thinking about what you've been meditating on as we praise Him during that time. But it shouldn't just be something we do for, you know, a couple minutes on Sunday. Our life can be full of worship. When we reflect on these things about God, about His nature, we can worship Him through prayer, through singing, or we can maybe just sit there quietly and worship Him for who He is and what He has done. The next thing that Moses did was in verse 9. To paraphrase his response, he says, If you really love me the way you say you do, then please go with us. You know, he, as he reflected on God's nature, Moses wanted God to be a part of his life. He wasn't okay to be apart from him. How about you? And how about me? What's holding you back from making God a bigger part of your life today? Do you question his care for you? Do you feel like he's angry with you? Or has it sunk in today that he's not going to give up on you even at those times when you give up on yourself. Maybe you see yourself like the prodigal son who felt like he needed to earn his father, earn his love of his father. Will you realize today that as soon as that prodigal turned back to his father, the father took him in fully and completely, regardless of what happened. He didn't need to have it all together. He just needed to turn back to his father. Are you willing to turn to your Heavenly Father today. What's holding you back? Moses wanted this amazing God to be a bigger part of his life. And I hope that it could be our response today too. The last thing that Moses did is in verse 9. He asked for God's mercy and forgiveness in his life. And maybe after you've reflected on all of who God is, this is where you're at today too. Moses is essentially saying... I know we're really stubborn 
and we've upset you, but we need you. Please take us as your people. And I just love the humility of that, of that statement. I think it's something we all need to realize for ourselves, especially if we've not yet given our lives to Jesus. On our own, we simply cannot make it right with God. We need a Savior. Jesus is that Savior. And if you haven't given your life into His hands yet, I hope you're hearing today how much God wants to save you. He wants to forgive you. And He has made a way for that to be possible. But He is also a God of justice, like we talked about. And so you need to accept the sacrifice of Jesus that He made for you on your behalf so you can be forgiven. You have to have faith in what God has done for you. And the Bible teaches us to demonstrate that faith by being baptized into Christ. This marks the beginning of a new relationship which consists of an eternal life with God. Enjoying a relationship with Him forever. The God who loves you so much. If we're in Christ, we're forgiven. And we're spared from the punishment that our sin deserves because our Savior took it for us. We've already looked at this verse, but I just want to close with it. In 1 Peter 2.24, he says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed. If you're ready to be healed today, if you're ready to respond, or if you want to learn more, please don't wait. You can talk to me or to Jay or to one of the elders or really any Christian you trust. We'd love to help you draw closer to God, this amazing God that we've been describing today, so that you can give your life to Him. Thank you for your time.